We are live now, episode six, Outlast the Iron. Can you believe we made it, Zach? No, I can't. I'm, I'm out of breath from running up the stairs. Uh, that, that's not surprising because you and your boys don't do any conditioning, so I would imagine anything longer than a what, – what's the longest carry event in a, in a strongman? 60 feet. Yeah, so anything longer than 60 feet is uh, – it's got to yeah, be a, there's a, a lot cardio of event. 60 feet. You're talking carrying 600 pounds, 60 feet, you know what I mean? If, that's a lot of power in 60 feet, bro. We, yeah. we, we ain't got to run from nobody. That's true. That's very true. Well, welcome back from, from a little bit of a break. Uh, so for, for folks who were expecting a, an episode last week, um, you know, sometimes we need to take some pauses uh, and that, you know, that can start with programming, um, but it also transcends to work. Uh, and yeah, I think- most definitely. I was a little burnout last week. I was to like three podcasts last week, my own personal podcast, Outlast the Iron here and one with a friend. And I was just like, man, I need a, I need a break. So how, how do you... Um, how do you explain that to, to regular people? Because regular people will look at Zach and they'll say, well, everything Zach has me doing seems to be intense, max intensity. Everything that he's doing seems really extreme, right? Uh, he lives life to the fullest. Um, he goes max effort all the time, but he also takes breaks. Like, so how do you, how do you teach that to people? How do, you, how do you teach people like, yeah, you need to reset. If, you need, if you're going to have a max effort performance, you need to have a good reset period before you're going to have a max effort performance? That's a great question. I think it first starts with me as self-awareness to recognizing when I'm not optimal. I realized a couple, I was kind of forcing the podcast the last couple of weeks because I just kind of get burnt out on them pretty quick. Um, Cause it's just, it's, it's a long format conversation. We're trying to provide value and entertainment simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And it, sometimes that's, it's draining. So I'm just aware yeah. Okay, this is draining me a little bit. And I, then I start to look at the other, basically I talk about this a lot, my other metrics of success in my life, which are, you know, family time, my leisure stuff, like kayaking, hiking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was realizing that my cups needed to fill it up a little bit more on those ends in relation sure. to the podcast. So um, it's, I think that really helps. Um, I think if we have set buckets for ourselves, you know, relationship, leisure, hobbies, um, uh, work and then like fitness and spiritual stuff I've put all kind of together mm-hmm. I realize that I'm getting a little burnout in one area I realize I don't have enough in another mm-hmm. so when I have to recognize that I just make small adjustments and changes uh, to my schedule and it actually helps my performance a ton in sure. each area even the area that I was quote-unquote overperforming in I sure. get better in because I'm able to provide more structure and focus to that one area you know when you do something you know in and out, like, okay, for like, if you, if you drink beer all the time, right? You know, when you first start drinking, you only need two or three beers and you're, you're, you're buzzed up and you're having a great time. But if you abuse it, then you need 20 beers to get buzzed yeah. up and have a good time. And there's a lot of negative side effects that come with drinking 20, 20 beers. A lot there are. More, in fact, that's true. <laughs> a lot more that it comes with drinking two or three beers. Yeah. So I kind of put that with everything. Like, if I have to work 16 to 18 hours a day to be able to make the money that I'm trying to make, my system's broke. Yep. I, Yep. You've worked that much in order to get that fulfillment that I want from it. So I stop kind of like we talked about the other day, rather than hit my head against the wall, I stop, I pull back and I just, I look for a more optimal approach. I look for the door. And, and yeah, and that's exactly how I run, run my show pony training, which I've been doing for most of the last several years uh, prior to uh, folks who may know that I've been working with Zach for the last couple of months to try to get my deadlift above 500 and you know, maybe even the mid 500 range. Um, but for most of the last several years, I've been doing show pony training where, you know, it's, it's very intuitive. I feel my body out 
And uh, I take a lot of um, deload weeks compared to most people who are in the, the shape that I'm in. And basically the way I would do it is, you know, I would, I would monitor my progress and, and linearly try to improve. So it wasn't conjugate style training. I wasn't, you know, having uh, on weeks, off weeks. I was basically doing, you know, similar stuff week after week and trying to get better week after week. And a lot of weeks I could get better and a lot of weeks I couldn't. And I basically would notice that if I'm, if I'm hitting two workout sessions in a row or I'm, I'm plateauing, I'm not really getting anything out of this and I should probably take a, a, a lower load week. And it's really hard to convince myself to do that because once you're in the groove of this is what I'm going to do, I'm waking up at this time, I'm doing this activity, I'm going to have this mental approach and then I'm going to come home and I'm going to do that. It almost becomes uh, mindless to repeat the same thing. And so some people on the outside looking in might say, oh, you're working hard, you're working hard, you're working hard. But when you're mindlessly working hard, it doesn't feel like it's as hard work. And you can find yourself kind of in that hamster wheel where you're doing a lot of spinning, but you're not making any progress. And so I think a lot of the principles that both Zach and I uh, apply to life have been learned through training um, because a lot of the, you know, very, very key concepts, you know, you need rest, you need recovery, you need to train hard, you need to be able to, uh, to push through pain. Um, all of these lessons transfer. You need to, you need to have your position appro uh, positioning appropriate. Um, so many of these lessons transfer. And I think the earlier or the, the more people can understand that um, dedicating yourself to improvement in any area of your life, if you really, really dedicate yourself to improvement in that area, will force you to see a lot of connections in other areas of your life. And so, and so if you're smart, then it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's weightlifting, whether it's like you're playing Magic the Gathering and you're a card player, like whatever it is, chess, if you can get really good at this one thing, you have a template through which you can see other, um, other ventures that you embark on. And the more you do it, the more efficient you can be with your, with what you do. And the more efficient you can be with what you do, the more motivation you have because you don't actually have to work as hard to get the same output or to get, to get the same reward. And you sort of get addicted to winning. But I think a lot of people miss that because they haven't quite gotten good at that one thing. And so they just, they're they're accustomed to um, following someone else's instructions rather than figuring out how can I how can I be the best at this one thing and oh by the way I can actually learn about so many other different areas in my life by by applying these principles elsewhere. Yeah, I'd agree. You know, a lot of the times I think we choose the wrong templates. Is yeah. another. I think uh, you know at the end of the day we're all responding to life just based off of the accumulation of all the other interactions and traumas that's happened in our life is how we're going to then kind of base the future of our life off of. So the future of our life is typically based off the, the past of our life. Yep. And people typically live in yesterday. They never live actually for today, which is for tomorrow, right? Correct. We always live back. So those, that's a principle that everyone should practice on maybe reapplying with their life is thinking rather not about your past tense, not your past shame or your past circumstances, but your present self. Who are you now today? Who is your present self? And what does your present self want to see from your future self rather than living backwards? Um, you see that with a lot of people though, they, especially coming from a small town, I was able to really recognize this, like dudes got really good at farming and they did like for generations, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like generation to generation dudes yeah. at farm. And then, I mean, all the time in the coal mines, I'm a fifth generation coal miner, fourth generation coal miner. Like you just heard that all the time. So these guys developed great skills in the coal mine, which then 
also was able to provide phenomenal lifestyles for their family and have all the toys and the nice houses and have all those luxuries um, that not so many people had from back home. So they chose those templates and they kind of just continued to, to work off of what they knew. Correct. Well, I think for me is I just learned the lifting template and I worked off of what I knew. And then a decade later, I started realizing that, oh shit, I'm basing all of my decisions as far as what my weaknesses are in my actual life, mm-hmm. in my strengths, right? So mm-hmm. like a weakness for me would be cardio, but I don't need much cardio. I only need 60 feet of cardio. So maybe strong for 60 feet, right? So I only practice for what I need to be most optimal in that sport, whatever that looks like. So in my strengths, as far as, um, you know, owning a business and uh, communicating with people on via social media and meetups in person, it's like, I'm only trying to be as best as I can. So for instance, my, one of my weaknesses, I, and I use it as my word this year is intentionality. I have a hard time being right here in the present moment because I'm always have 500 things going yeah. on and I like to move. I like being busy and I like yeah. to have my in motion. Yeah. So I lack, I, I lack intentionality. So this year I set that as my word for the year is to be intentional. So I'm working on more meetups with people. I got already got half my summer's plan of people travel from out of town, come to train train yeah. and hang out for the day. And during this time, I'm just going to be intentional. I'm going to have my phone away and I'm going to be directly with these people. Mm-hmm. And that's also what I'm trying to do across all areas of my life. But I found that was a weakness in what I want to have a strength and one day I want to have a retreat and I just want to yeah. have a place where people could come and grow and come and heal. So in order for me to be not a cult, though. not, not a cult, maybe, but, <laughs> but in order for me to be better and be the best where people would want to buy into something like that, I have to be ultra intentional. I have to be yeah. with them in that moment and truly there helping them grow and helping them heal. And that's something I'm passionate in, but I realized, Oh, you're passionate, but you're also, you lack some intentionality. So that's yeah. an area that I saw I need to develop them in. I related that back to my training, like, oh, okay, when yeah. my hips kick up, I don't need more hamstring strength. So this is, this is that, that's my hamstring strength is my intentionality. Let me go mm-hmm. and up it a little bit. And mm-hmm. then now it's actually becoming a strength of mine because I've been focusing on it so much. Now, do you think it, it Matt, because when I look at uh, mental, I guess, mental wiring, I, you kind of look at it, I kind of look at it the same way as physical wiring, where um, a lot of strengths are on the backs of weaknesses. A lot of weaknesses are on the backs of strengths. And so I know you tweeted yesterday how the, the older you get, the further you want to live away from people, right? And I was going to respond and I thought, you know, actually, why don't we just talk about this on the podcast where because you evaluate yourself, you evaluate your relationships based on are people getting closer to you over time or further away. Um, and you've assessed a personal weakness as I'm not being as intentional as I, I want to be with people. Um, you're forcing yourself into a high effort, um, engagement, uh, you know, uh, I guess style with people because that leads to one goal of yours, which, you know, deeper connection. Yeah. But then is how closely is this related to, you know, the, the need to get away? It's directly related. Yeah. And that's what actually, Ash and I have spoke about this a lot because she's both in the service industry as well. And after a day of serving people, we come home, dude, and there's maybe two or three nights a week each, you know, and we'll come home and thankfully they're on the same night sometimes where she needs like two hours just to not talk. And I just need two hours just to not talk. Like I just need to be home fucking wrestling my dogs or laying in my yard, just doing nothing, you know, just absolutely nothing just disconnecting and refining myself that's how i'm able to refill my cup so what i realized over the last couple of years is 
I grew pretty fast. So people wanted my attention. Yep. And I wanted to give people my attention because my whole life I worked to be in this position to be able to help people become stronger and better human beings, both physically and mentally and spiritually. So it's like, I'm finally in this position to do this for people. And I just couldn't handle it because there's, there's a plethora of people coming at me, right? Yeah. I had to retract a little bit and realize in order to, for me to give my best self, I need space and I need distance from people. Mm-hmm. I can't be coming home and forcing conversation with my neighbors whenever we don't have a ton in common. And they're great people. And I love to say, hey, how's it going? But I'm not going to, I can't force an extra hour or 30 minutes of conversation because it's simply just not in me at that time to be able to give my best self. Mm-hmm. And then what I started realizing is if I'm going to be able to give my best self, I need a little bit of a distance and I need to choose when I'm around people. So when I'm around them, they have the best me. They get mm-hmm. the full intentional Zach Hummel. And a lot of people can't do this because they work a regular job or they have to be there for their employees or their boss. And it, it's a little bit more challenging. And that's why I'm trying to cr- create a structure and a life that makes sense for me and what my emotions need to be my best self. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why I also work for myself because I realized that on day five of working straight 12 hour midnights at the coal mines, like I'm in there like, fuck all you motherfuckers. Like yeah. that's the, don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? Because I'm just burnt out on right. life and work and overstimulated. And I recognize those things. It's like, that's what I'm trying to retract from. So actually me wanting to be closer to people has everything to do with me wanting to be further from people. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, to, to fall back on, on training templates that we all have. It's like the reason why with my show pony plan, I do as little volume as I do and I take as many deload weeks as I do and I take as long rest periods as I do is because of how intense I go in the sets where I'm training, right? My working sets are um, much closer to my, my maximum capacity at the, at the four, five, six rep range than I think a lot of people's are, even if they think they are, you know, cause like I know my body, I know how I can manage pain and I know exactly what I need to feel like to give it, you know, 97, 98, 99% max effort for a set. And that requires rest, right? I can't just go in and bang out, uh, you know, a set of uh, heavy five deadlifts and then turn around four minutes later and do it again. And not um, only rest, but, but recovery. And that's recovery. something you're working on. You know, you're recovering. Yeah. Like, you're the, at the end of the day, you're the dream client. You already lift good. You're already strong. You already know how to suffer. Essentially, I just got to put numbers on paper and you just got to execute. Right. You know what I mean? You understand that I might have to do the same exercise for five, six weeks to develop out this weakness. That's hard for some people because they don't want to do that same exercise because they get boredom. They find boredom in that. You realize there's a job that needs done and you need to accomplish it. You know, you have yeah. a very strategic way, but it's super interesting when I look at your training and I looked at your training template prior to us training, the, the fact that you're able to move at 80 plus percent, you know, 85% typically of your maximum actual max weights for multiple sets and reps through multiple weeks and still have incremental gains over the months. It's kind of crazy because typically training blocks are like this. Mm -hmm. They're waving intensities up and down and they peak and we drop it back down. We build some muscle through some hypertrophy style exercises or Mm -hmm. just more EP style work, strength and ligaments and tendons through more higher volume exercises and drags and carries. And then we spike it back up again where you, you're just, and you sit up here at 85%. This is a hundred. You sit up here and then you deload. Then you come right back up to 85, 90 and you stay there. Mm -hmm. And the only way that I could actually coach somebody and do it is I train like that's very similar. I trained above 90% almost all the time when I was like conjugate style a little bit more. 
but also I was in fully just powerlifting. And it worked real well for powerlifting if you get your rest, every, the outside life yes. fixed. But what happens is you start to beat up, if you're in those three reps or under, you really begin to beat up the joints. You really yeah. just start to beat yourself up there. But in the realm that you're in, four to six reps, that's your sweet spot. That's great mm -hmm. for hypertrophy, especially through heavy strenuous exercises. Yeah. It requires maximal effort capacity. You know, you have a very unique structure that doesn't typically work for most people because they don't do what they need to with their recovery and their mental preparation of understanding. Like the other day we realized, okay, listen, you're like 94 to 96% recovered. Like mm -hmm. that's probably a very accurate number. Mm -hmm. Like you don't really know for sure, but yeah. you know, after a decade of, yeah. Yeah. You know, like you're like, Oh, yeah. it's the sun comes up. The sun comes up here and it sits here. Like you just, mm -hmm. you recognize these things. You know, your body so dang well yeah. and we gave you that extra day to recover. And yeah, Oh, we didn't do deadlifts on Wednesday, but instead we did them on Thursday. It, and that fucks with people sometimes mentally, but you also have that mental understanding that I'll need a little bit more rest for higher performance on the next day. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and I even think through this now and, and, Everything that I'm doing from a, a training standpoint is really, um, you know, how can I put myself in a position to, to deadlift, you know, probably something in the low 500s for a single rep max and not get hurt. Because when I'm addressing the bar mid 400s, 5400s, there's no doubt in my mind that weight's going up. There is fear in my mind that something's going to snap in my back, right? Um, you know, because we're working on my core weakness, uh, ideally I would like to be able to get a little bit lower to the bar and use my, my glutes a little bit better to drive, um, drive the weight up. Um, and so, you know, what I need to do in order to make sure that, uh, like I know the weight's going up. So the question is, how do I, how do I get the weight up and not hurt myself? Well, I need to make sure that I'm resting properly. I need to make sure that I'm recovering properly. I need to make sure I'm eating properly. And if I'm trying to, to roll the dice on any one of those things, that's going to increase the chance that something else is going to go wrong actually in my training. And so as much as I, I might think it's nice to have the same schedule and train on the same days of the week uh, all the time, it's like, well, I don't have a family right now and it's like still kind of quarantine. So I can, I can move things around a lot. Um, why don't I put myself in the position to perform as well as I can, as safely as I can? Like, what is wrong with taking extra rest? What is wrong with eating a little bit larger portion sizes and maybe getting a little bit fatter? It's like, that's kind of what I need to do for the next several weeks. And then I can stop doing it in two months after I, you know, decide I don't want to do it anymore. And that's it. And now that you're entering into a higher intensity style of training, you have to put on a few extra pounds. And it doesn't, I'm not like you have to actually gain weight. You just have to consume more calories because your body's going to demand it. Mm -hmm. And if your body demands that there's, the body, it takes a few weeks, even a month to catch up on body composition. So you might hold a little extra around your midsection and your body fat might go up three or 4%. But if you rode it out for another two or three months, your body fat percent would start to go back down because your body composition would begin to improve from the new stimulus. Yeah. And, and it's so crazy. Get bigger, but that might not necessarily be your goal. Cause you're like, Zach, I don't want to get too much bigger because I can't eat 7,000 fucking calories a day or I don't want to, whatever that yeah. might look like. And that's when you have to truly start deciding like, okay, this is what's best and most optimal for me. Like for instance, for me, my best deadlift is at 180. Like I'm at, I'm at 190 this morning, 189, 190, which is lighter for me because I was at mm -hmm. 215 last year. And yeah, I'm, you skinny. I'm prime deadlift position. That's why I pulled 585 for three the other day when I did my deadlift seminar or my deadlift workshop. 
because my body weight's light. And when my body weight's light, my positioning is better on the deadlift. Interesting. I, you have better mobility? Oh, yeah. Better, I move better. I'm, I'm, you ought to see me. I can do leg kicks right now. I can kick someone <laughs> in the head. Yeah. You know, I can move real well. And I'm fast. And I'm athletic. I can jump. And I can, I, I'm guarantee I can dunk right now. There's no doubt. Like, any, whenever I get below 190, I usually can dunk. Anything above 190, I can only get the rim. Crazy. Crazy. It's like Zach's that. only five seven guys too. That's uh, it's like Spud Webb style. No yeah, very. Everyone cracks up when I used to be able to dunk. You know, I used to, when I'd play ball at times, I just go up. And it wasn't like I was just slamming it on people, but right. I could I mean, get barely it. getting it in. I'm sure, but yeah, yeah. You know, that's be- that's better than me. I can like at this point, I can probably barely touch the rim. I don't even know. Well, how do you jump so high? I go. I squat and I deadlift a lot. Right. You know, when you squat and deadlift heavy weights and you're pulling 700 pounds off the ground and you're also training for, you know, accommodated resistance, training through accommodated resistance with bands and chains, you learn how to, how to build strength throughout your jump. I mean, I jump out of four foot of water. I'm right. waiting in four foot of water. I can jump on the side of the pool and just chill there. Right. But you build that explosiveness and that fast twitch when you bend down and you obviously explode up. The same idea, like the, de- the, the deadlift through accommodated resistance bands or chains more preferably bands because what bands do is they increase uh the bands naturally as you're coming up yeah. with the chains uh, I, I ain't even gonna explain them but anyways you use the bands uh, i like the bands more on the deadlifts for my explosive training sets of like two to three with 10 sets with like 70 percent, which includes the accommodated distance with the bands mm-hmm. it's gonna help your explosiveness a ton because you think about the starting position of your deadlifts you don't bend down much further than that if even that far whenever you're jumping true so that's where you're going to get a lot of your explosive power from. That or high box squats. You, know, you shouldn't, you could, and you will get improvements by squatting ash to grass for your vertical, but also you got to recognize how far am I dipping before I'm transitioning back up right. into the jump. And that's where I want to strengthen. Uh, ankle stability helps a ton with jump one and jump higher. And so does calf strength. Don't, don't neglect the calves. Could you dunk when you were in high school? Dunk? No, I, I think I could grab a rim in high school. It was probably when I was like 21, 2021, 20, I was able to dunk. So your deadlift was 550-ish yeah. at the time? Yeah. 550, yeah, right around 550 is the time I was dunking. But, I, you know, I didn't uh, – I don't think I was uh, necessarily trying either that much. I wasn't playing basketball kind of at that sure. time either, so I really don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's interesting. So, you know, I guess with, uh, with respect to, you know, the programming that, that we're working on, you know, this week um, I'm doing sets, you know, four sets of two for my heavy lifts after uh, doing uh, peak lifting the week prior. So my peak lifting the week prior, um, we have a couple lifts, deadlift and, uh, and squats, which I'm doing front squats because I uh, have limited shoulder mobility, so it's just easier to do it in the front. Um, and so for my front squats, I did 325 for two. And then for my deadlifts, I did 475 for three. And what we're supposed to model it after is a a three rep or so max, take 90% of that. So I did four sets of two at 285 front squatting last time. Um, I'm going to do four sets of two at 425, 430, uh, deadlifting later tonight. Which will be, it'll be challenging, but but not. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a weight that I take seriously, but it's not a weight that I'm going to have any issues doing. I could probably do a 4x4 four four at, uh, at 4.30 and, like, no problem. Um, and then what we'll do next week, uh, we have two different options, which is mm-hmm. great that we're talking about it. Yeah. Um, we'll do next week. We'll see if your body needs a little deload. Maybe we'll wait this extra two or three days before we head into it. We have two different okay. options. 
we either do a four by two progression where you'll work up to a top set of two. Maybe that's 485 on the pool, 495, because you pull what, 475? For three, yeah. For, for three, so probably four. We could either do that or we would do a three, two, one progression. So mm -hmm. we would do a couple sets of three with 225 and 315, and then we go one set of two at uh, 365, and then 405 for one, uh, 455 for one, uh, 485 to 500 for one and go to where it would not actually be a true max, but a sub-maximal weight. And then the next week, we would take that week to, again, do a little additional deload. If we didn't deload that week, we would mm -hmm. deload a little, little, little bit, maybe eight to 10 days, and then uh, we plan our max. We'd actually go for a max out. Yeah. And here's, here's something to talk about, just kind of get, get everyone up to date on where you're at on programming, though. Alex and I are working him into a peak. However, his positioning is, is like I said, it's great. It's optimal too. It just could be a little bit more optimal if he, his hips was a little lower. Well, if his hips were a little bit lower, we'd be able to get more quad activation, quad torque off the ground. I only say activation because you got activation because you're squatting, you're down, right. you have activation, but you're going to get more quad involvement off the ground. So more, more torque off the floor by being a little bit more upright with the hips a little lower. And he brought this up because Joe had made, Joe, which is my training mentor, had made mention to Alex, your deadlift would improve if your hips went down. And Joel was 100% correct. Correct. So Alex and I talk about getting his hips lower. And I said, well, this is the issue of why I haven't gotten your hips lower yet. When we drop your hips lower, your hamstrings aren't quite strong to support the load yet. So as you begin to lift the weight, your hips are going to come forward before they actually gain traction of the deadlift. And when your hips come forward, what that's going to do actually uh, here, so as your hips, so if you're deadlifting like this, right, mm -hmm. and your hips are lower, and here's your hips. If your hips come up before they gain traction, your shoulders go over top of the bar and that strain goes down here into your lower back. So you're saying I'm in a different position. If I start with my hips lower and kick them up, I, they kick up to a different position than if I just start them higher. No, they, they, they kick to the position that they're in now. Okay. The, the, your, your starting position now. Okay. But your hamstrings ain't strong to support you at the bottom. Neither is your hip hinge. Sure. Okay. Hip hinges, hips and hamstrings aren't strong enough to support that load in that light, you know, one or two inch lower position. Well, why not just put him in it to get used to it and get it practicing it? Well, here's why. Because Alex just mentioned that he's having issues bracing his core. It's not bad, but he is getting some, his core is breaking. So if I set his hips lower, he's going to have more momentum. And when his hamstrings catch here and his shoulders go over top of the bar and his, his core is going to be more likely to break because he has added momentum from the bottom of the pool. That's why I have him starting in the static position that he's in and strengthen his hip shins where he's at, developing out his hamstring strength. So the next 12 week cycle will have him two inches lower, but he'll, his core will be able to handle that pressure if his hips kick up and he'll be less vulnerable to injury. So it's like, it's a longer process to get in the most effective position, but it's also in the position Alex is in for being, you know, super low body fat. We're going to recognize this. It's like, this is how we keep him injury free uh, throughout his training cycle. And it's so interesting talking like this because, you know, from being involved in sports my whole life, but competitive sports, you know, for, for my late teens, early twenties, you know, we were in environments where we had to be able to objectively discuss our weaknesses, where it's like, look, you're, you're not fast enough right now, or, you know, you're not big enough right now to uh, get the attention of scouts, or, um, you know, we need you to be able to hit with more power. And, and it's, there's like no objecting to it. It's like, obviously, this is true. Let's work together to make, to get you as a player better to get to the next level. 
And this has, you know, from the age of 18, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19 years old has been a, um, it's very natural. It's very easy for me to speak with somebody who knows more than me about something or even somebody who knows less than me and say, look, this is, these are my strengths. These are my weaknesses. And this is what I'm doing. Bless you, Zach. This is what I'm doing to address my weaknesses. Yeah. I'm not trying to hide them. But then as I got, uh, you know, as I started working in a corporate environment, I almost forgot that a lot of people get really uncomfortable when you talk about weaknesses like that. It's almost like they, they expect that if you don't talk about them, that you don't notice them. And, and people don't realize, like, if they're around smart people, smart people will notice, like, everything about you. They'll notice, like, all of your insecurities, all these things that you think you're hiding, you're not hiding from smart people. You give it away. You just don't realize it if you're not that smart. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, and by smart, not just IQ, EQ. Um, yeah. which, which I know, which I know we talked, uh, discuss a lot about. No, it's funny you mentioned that because I work with certain clients who, when I discuss weaknesses, you can tell they get uncomfortable and almost like a little bit upset, like angry almost, or like standoffish. And it's for me to then come in and explain like, listen, uh, and this is something that mo- most of you guys are probably already figured out. I'm very big on backhanded compliments and I shouldn't <laughs> be, I am. I'm like, you know, yeah, your grabs look good, but you suck. <laughs> It's not out of a place that like, I'm trying to push you down. It's just my way of saying like, listen, you can be so much, I see so much more potential in you. Like my guys, like they're around me, not because of the things I tell them they're great at, but because of the things I tell them they need to work on. And that's how these guys, but also like my team, it's not by accident that we keep going to these strongman competitions and we keep winning them. It's not by accident that we keep going to the powerlifting competition and keep winning them. You know, there's, there's a reason behind why we're having the results that we're having. It's because our gym acknowledges that we have things that we need to work on, which is why we go there. And it's nothing's better than having someone who loves you so much and tells you you suck and they yeah. mean it. And they're like, I can be better at this. Like there's nothing Alex does lifting wise. That's bad. He's great. A great lifter. He has the body that 99.99% of the world would want. He has the brains that 99.9% of the world would want. But it's not my job to tell him everything he's good at. It's my job to make him better at the things he wants to be better at. And I think that's something that we need to recognize as coaches. We have to start stepping up and truly saying, like, no, you got, you got to work on this. And uh, like I had a guy I worked with a couple of years ago, and he never tracked none of his meals. And he didn't get the results that he wanted. And he didn't track his sleep. And I was like, brother my man, you got to track this stuff because if you don't track these type of, if you don't, if you don't track this type of information, you're not actually going to get better. You have to be willing to put this extra, extra effort in. And yeah, uh, yeah. so that's my, that's my little ramble there. I don't know where I, why, why. Well, no, it's, it's, it's like people, people might be paying the messenger, but they want to shoot the messenger too. And, and people don't realize that I think this might come from schooling, actually, if we want to go, you know, talk about, about the educational system a little bit more. I think teachers are great. You know, I, I like teachers too, but I'm just talking, I'm talking about the framework that they're required okay. to fit in. I, I think we just need to clarify some of that stuff. You know, I'm yeah. a huge advocate. I have lots of teacher friends, <laughs> but uh, yeah, most definitely. Oh, but it's like the, the framework that, that you go through when you're a kid is, your work quality is typically assessed. It's, it's given a grade A through F, but really it's graded on flaws, right? And if you, if you produce work that, is, that lacks flaws, you get good grades. And it sets the expectation with kids, especially those who, who have good grades, is that if I, if I turn in work that's not flawed, I will get an A. And, and 
I turn in work that's not flawed, I get A's. And so, and so people develop, like, you know, straight A students develop this idea that they are competent, they are smart, um, valuable individuals because of a, a lack of flaws that they have. And, but then when you get into a, uh, I would say, a, a wider playing field where, where it, there isn't, it, it's not clear that this is a work. Um, you know, it's not clear that, like the path to deadlifting 600 pounds is not obvious. It's not as obvious as the path to getting an A on your math test. And when you switch from getting, you know, shooting for an A on your math test where the, where the path is paved and it's pretty clear which steps you, you take to get there, to where, you know, you may not ever be able to, to deadlift 600 pounds. It's not clear that you can. You may not have the genetics for it. Um, a lot of times people don't realize that you can't take the same approach to, to, to each different thing. And if you really want to um, excel in something that very few people out of a thousand can do, you need to understand your weaknesses because the, because everybody has them, right? Every person you're competing against in a thousand has weaknesses, no doubt. It's a question of it's a question of how well can they assess their weaknesses? Are they willing to assess them? How well can they assess them? And then what are they doing about it once they've figured it out? But everybody has these weaknesses. We all have them. If you look at any, if you, if you took MRIs, you took x-rays of my body or Zach's body, you'd, you'd figure out 10 times as many weaknesses as we know we have, right? You'd see, you know, probably some degree of joint decomposition, like all sorts of things. And, and you might even wonder like, how are these people moving the way they do? But, but in, at the end of the day, um, you know, everybody's flawed. And, and if you want to be successful, you need to realize that you're always going to be flawed. You're always going to be broken. And, and, and how do you figure out the right path based on that? Yeah, and it's okay. It's okay to fucking be flawed, to be broke. You know, we're all broken people. Um, and, and when you talked about the, the system of like, I have no idea how these guys could potentially even be moving. I know people in my life, Joel, for instance, had double knee constructive surgery, fucking elbows, couldn't even bend to here, has been shot and stabbed multiple times. Joel shouldn't be able to lift. He couldn't bend his elbow much further than this, right? So he'd lock out his bench. One would be here and one would be here, bro. He nuts. would lock out on his right side and not lock out on his left side? Listen, dude fucking benched 500 pounds. Like that. No, they told Joel he shouldn't be doing any of this shit. His hip knee double, like his hips are fucked up. His knees are fucked up. His elbow is fucked up. His whole shit is fucked up, dude. He's nothing, nothing besides burn the candle on both ends with a blowtorch. <laughs> that hasn't been his life, right? You can't tell this motherfucker nothing. In his mind, he's still like, dude, he was talking to him. He's still going to bench 500. I'm coming back. I'm parallel squatting five. Like, He's just fucking, it's a mindset, dude. Like the doctors could tell him he could never walk again and he'd go out and he'd squat 706 months. It's just how he is and it's how the body and how his mind works. No, his mind, his body must meet the, the demands of his mind. And, mm -hmm. and that's something that I learned too, that it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, like my shoulders ache and my elbows hurt. And it's like, I've, I've accomplished a lot of great things in lifting weights and I've done a lot of cool feats of strength, but that comes with damage and the body hurts from it. But I, not everyone's like, well, what if you can't? And I've said this before on the podcast. What if you can't walk when you're 50? I said, I'll fucking crawl. You know what I mean? It's just like, these are the mindsets that it has. Because if I have that mindset, though, I know when I'm 50, I'll probably be running marathons. They will not be able to Google. If I went on Google or I got a, uh, when I seen a doctor, they might tell me I should never be able to walk again anyways. 
but my mind tells me what I'm what I'm going to do, and that's what I do. And I feel like that's where a lot of us miss is we get so caught up in science and what this says and what this says. And it's like I've been around enough people who've defined the odds more times than once. So it's just like I got to believe that the mind is more powerful than we're giving it credit for. Yeah, and it's it also shows just where people spend time because you spend more of your time on the ground working with elite athletes rather than in an ivory tower studying their performance, right? It's like your ivory tower is Iron Valley, Iron Valley Barbell. It's an iron tower. Um, the iron tower. The iron tower. And, um, and so, you know, when, when people go through school and they're reading studies, they'll say, well, the average person's going to respond like this, who looks like that. It's like, yeah, because the average person's mind isn't very strong. Right. And the, the average person doesn't, isn't really able to overcome multiple layers of adversity. And so, when you're uh, when when you're paving your own path, and, and this is why I think there's a, little, a lot of disagreements between the people who you know are, are good students and, and the people who maybe start their own businesses and are entrepreneurs, because um, you need to be able to perceive the world through your own perspective if you want to have be successful in your own business. You need to have a vision. <clears throat> it helps that you can really see something, and if it's unique and no one else can see it, that means. It's kind of your own creation. It's your own idea and you put, put, put it out there and you execute it on it. Um, in school, you're judged by how well you understand a concept that already exists, right? How, how, what was your score on the geology test? It's like, did you read the chapters that were already written? Are you able to regurgitate what's already there? And so the, the people who are, are, and that's essentially backwards looking, right? That, that, that the types of people who are going to be good in the academic environment are, are, I think are kind of the types of people who are going to be more inclined to do backwards looking um, projections because they haven't quite learned that that format of thinking isn't exactly the right tool to be using in a real world situation. Whereas the people who maybe haven't spent that much time in school, but just know, look, I want to get better. I need to, I need to move from this point to that point. I've studied other people who move from this point to that point. This is what they have in common. This is what they, this is what they lack in common. And here's how I'm going to go do it. The guy, and I wish I knew his name. We need a third party to fact check us for us. It was like in the 1800s, I believe the dude who invented hand soap, they put him in a mental institution because they thought he was crazy. I did not know that. Fun fact. I know I have a lot of dumb shit up here. Okay. Completely irrelevant. Maybe. Doesn't really serve much, but it's a good analogy. And the analogy, right? And that's why I like the, just a fun, fun fact, guys. Learn useless information because you can use parallels and analogies and it makes you sound way more smarter. Uh, but it also just shows, but what it actually does and why I actually choose to use analogies is because it makes it more relatable. People are able to understand anymore. Everything I do in lifting weights is all based off analogies. Squeezing like you're taking a poop. That's how you, that's how I teach the Valsauer maneuver. You don't, you don't breathe on the squat like this. <sighs> you breathe like you're taking a poop. <sighs> When you push that out, you maintain that brace and that core tightness. Quick tip right there. You guys can, I don't have a Venmo, but Venmo Alex, 10 bucks for it. <laughs> but uh, what were we talking about? Oh, the dude, they put him in a mental institution, bro. Because they didn't think that soap was a thing? Like, what they was... They thought he was crazy. That's why. They thought he probably he was, was crazy. Mentally, like, mentally, like mentally, what is it? Uh, what's psych psychopath? What's the actual... Schizophrenic? I don't know. Like psychotic? Whatever. Like Psychotic, yeah. Whatever word that they used for crazy, that's what they thought, I guess, this guy was. But he might have been. Maybe. What I'm trying to say is it's like, who knows? All fucking, everyone who's super smart is a little bit crazy. But, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting, though, to think that, man. It's just like, 
there's been so many times in history and history shows us this when people were outcast and Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther King, like people who stand out and, and do things against the grain, against the mold. There's all and Martin people. Luther for that matter. Huh? And Martin Luther for that matter. Right. You know, who stay, who go against the grain, man, um, who people think are either a little bit crazy or they disagree with, and it's not popular at that time. Like there's a lot of that going on right now where it's not popular. Like certain people are standing up for certain rights right now. And there's, uh, like the dude in New Jersey, Ian, who's standing up for his gym and he's going to war against the uh, people in uh, the New Jersey governor. Like he's standing up for what he believes in and that wrestles a lot of feathers with a lot mm -hmm. of people. And uh, but that's what it takes, you know, in order to be able to stand up for something that in, in his world, it makes sense. And that's all that he had to make sense of is within his world. Like you mentioned earlier, you have to stick to a plan that makes sense for you and something that you truly believe in, because that's where you can actually excel. Um, well, and, and, and I think, and I think when you look at a lot of businesses and you look at a lot of successful inventors, a lot of the people who are getting them started, you know, they're working as you, as you talked about 14, 16, 18 hour days for at least a period of time, maybe not, well, maybe not every day for 10 years, but you know, every day for a couple months or, um, you know, several days every year. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. And you, it helps to have a, um, let's say more than natural drive to accomplish something to justify putting that work in. And so I know nothing about the soap guy. I heard about him 30, 30 seconds ago from Zach, but I would, I would guess that it's not impossible that this dude was a hypochondriac and was just like totally scared of germs everywhere. Right. And, 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 and I'll put this fictional example out there just to, to, to show what I would imagine it would take to put the effort behind inventing the soap. It's like, Dude, there's been cleaning agents for 2,000 years. Like, they all work. Who would be motivated to uh, improve on the cleaning agents that already exist? Maybe somebody who's paranoid about diseases everywhere, right? And so maybe the reason this dude was able, presumably, to work 16, 18 hours a day to try to invent this soap is because this guy would go everywhere and just, like, try to disinfect everything. Like, he was the Karen, maybe, of, of the, the 19th century, if, if what we're saying is true. And it's like, the dude is true. Hey. <laughs> William what? Shepard. What? It's true. His name yeah. is William Shepard. It's true. Don't fuck with me. I know well, my was he was he like that? Was he totally like a germaphobe? No, no, I don't know his life history. I just know the fact. <laughs> I looked it up a couple months ago. Well, because people think like, oh, you know, they were wrong for they they misjudged him. Like it's possible they accurately judged him. That's the other thing. Is like if yeah, he it, it maybe he did. Totally cool to be crazy. It helps sometimes. It most, you know, and, and it's just like, what level of crazy do you choose and what level of weirdness do you choose? You know what I mean? It's just like, we all have our certain things and uh, a lot of us are just trying to fit in though with what society's norms are. And now, I mean, I guess for you, you probably get a little, because you live in California. Like when I went to Cali, I never felt like I fit in more because like no one was staring at me differently. Like, everyone looked fucking goofy. Everybody looked homeless in Cali. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I didn't look homeless in Cali. I know, you, I, you look. You look sexy at that time. I was pretty boy in Cali, though. That's right. That's but right. no, you know, it's just like, I don't feel like I'm being judged or mocked now. Don't get me wrong. But it's just like, I look around my neighborhood and it's just like, there's just not a lot of diversity. People right. all dress very similar. They all drive very similar cars. It's just like, and that's another thing for me that I feel like is kind of confining is that I, uh, and, I and Ash and I, I joked about this the other day. I said, like, we bought into the system. As much as we try to remove ourselves from it, we're a part of it. Sure. Like we have the little fucking house with our little square, you know, quarter acre lot that we manicure that looks beautiful. And we make sure we manicure it real well and just like try to have like 
we fucking are part of the fucking system, bro. And it's yeah. just like, and that's part of me. This is like, I want to completely remove myself from that. So just kind of go on a little tangent here. You know, one of my goals is to completely, completely debt free before I'm 32 house, cars, everything. I want to pay it all off. I don't want to live by the time I'm 32 years old. I want to be, I'm 28 now. So it's four years away. I don't want to have payments on fucking anything besides mm-hmm. the gym and badass shit that I want to keep putting in my gym. And mm-hmm. I don't want to, but I want to pay payments on it. I just want to have it all paid off, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't want to be a part of any system. You know, I just, mm-hmm. I want to be able to have, okay, I only need this much money to live off a month. And that's cool for me. Of course I have big dreams and goals, but I have a lot of projects that I do are just passion projects and they mm-hmm. might make me a lot of money or they might not, but I want to pursue those and have the freedom to pursue those. Cause that brings me fulfillment. And if I happen to make more money from it, great. But if not, at least I was serving what I believe was my mission at the time. And I had fulfillment in it. And I was also able to, you know, conduct my life in a manner that I wanted, but it's because I was disciplined and chose how I wanted to see my future. I chose my future to be debt-free. That means I have to be disciplined in the things that I buy and where I place my efforts, how I invest my money. That's a lot of things. I, I invest my money accordingly right now. I'm, I know what my goals are. I know the debts I want to pay down. So I, I have a system that I mm-hmm. pre-planned. And I'm like, well, I, I'm here. I've never budgeted before, but I've, mm-hmm. I'm learning how to create a system where I'm getting myself out of uh, the, the housing debt that I have and the vehicle debt that I have. Mm-hmm. Now, is that, um, let's, let's talk about that. Like, because, um, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't, I didn't actually realize that most people took on uh, loans to get cars because my parents always bought Japanese cars in cash. Right. And it was always like, well, like we're going to research whatever car is the best and is going to last 15 years. And then we're going to take our $16,000 and we're going to write a check and buy that car. And then we're not going to buy a car for 15 years. And, but then, you know, it wasn't even until I was like in my teens that I realized that a lot of people, you know, wanted to drive nicer cars and they also took out loans to, to make monthly payments on it. So is that like, you're a really independent person, but you decided that you wanted to, you know, get, get a truck, I guess you uh, took a car loan out to get it. What was going on through your mind uh, when you decided to do that? Because you obviously understood that that a, a more expensive truck would come with higher monthly payments that you'd need to service the this is what's going through my mind when i was a kid all i ever wanted was exactly what i have right now i wanted my family to not drive beater cars that had fucking loud mufflers and were pieces of shit and then i got dropped off places everyone looked and they see this shitty ass car and i hop out with the same clothes i had on three days ago i never wanted to be that kid anymore so i knew when i grew up i was like i just want to have something that just i can be proud of and that's going to be a nice house that i keep clean and it has a nice little yard just it's just what i need you know it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be 8,000 square foot. It just has to be nice and quaint. I just want a vehicle that I can be proud of and I can drive back and forth. So when I was uh, in the coal mine, I had bought a car and I drove that car. It was relatively, it was brand new. I was like a base model car. It was a Dodge Avenger. And I drove it literally until I bought my truck. Now, when I bought my truck, I knew I needed the truck for the gym. But I never had anything luxury. I never had the screen. I never had the backup cameras. I didn't have the heated seats. I didn't have the features that I've always just like wanted. And I was making, when I looked at the monthly payment, I'm like, I can afford whatever, like whatever it was at the time that I wanted to afford, I could, I could afford a high car note. So it's just mm-hmm. like, uh, my, my housing is relatively cheap and we pay less than a thousand dollars a month for our house. We have a three bedroom house, four bedroom oh. house. Yeah. So we have a four bedroom house. Pay more than that for the apartment I don't even live in right now in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So it's just like, we haven't, you've been in our yard and stuff. We have a little backyard. Yeah. We have a ton of property, but we have enough, we have a little bit of space and we have a relatively cheap note. So it's like my car note is almost the same as my house note. They're very, my truck notes are very similar to my house note. 
Um, but I could afford the payment at the time. And I, I wanted what I thought would bring me happiness at that time with fulfillment, which would be the nicer vehicle. And if I drive this nicer vehicle, and don't get me wrong, the truck has brought me so much fulfillment. I go kayaking. I lend it to my friends all the time. My friends always have my truck. If they want to go kayaking or if they need to move shit, like it's like a community truck. So it's like I have that, but I was like, it didn't have to be brand new. Right. And I didn't realize that. Like Ashley, she, her car's leased, but she's in drive far, but she has a Lexus. But it's still a fucking forty some thousand, almost fifty thousand right. dollar Lexus. And right. It's sexy interior. It has big ass car note, and when you maintenance it, it costs as much as the car note does in one month. Oh yeah, it's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars to maintenance it. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Thirty bucks for an oil change? Why are we paying hundreds of bucks for it? And uh, I fall to the system though, bro. I fell into like what I thought would bring me fulfillment. Don't get me wrong, it's nice shit, and it does right. make me happy to build pull up in a sexy Lexus, but I'd be just as cool pulling up in a $25,000 Jeep that I paid cash for it. You know? Right. So it's like, these are the things that I'm now relearning, but I got a taste of that nicer shit. Like yeah. I need a taste of that car to realize I didn't want it. So it's just exactly. like, if, like, if y'all are listening to this and you're in that position where it's like, yeah, I get that Zach, but I was just like you five years ago. Like I, my family struggled. So I wanted to have this. I want to have this do do you recognize it like if that's going to bring you and it did bring me a lot of happiness and fulfillment for that small period of my life but now i've just kind of grown past that and so it's like i'm going to have a truck but instead of having a forty thousand plus dollar note i'm going to have a twenty five thousand dollar note yeah that's all and i think the the best part about having cool stuff and doing cool things is not having the fomo for not having them and not doing them hmm. and I, you know, I, I noticed this because, you know, at a young age, I, you know, I've never made a ton of money in any of the jobs that I've had, but I've always been around people who have made a ton of money and they've invited me to, to do things that, uh, you know, I wouldn't otherwise do. Most people in my income range don't, uh, you know, fly in private jets. Not that I do that much, but I have a couple times. Right. And, you know, when I was You're working, in, what's that? You're a big deal. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, but I've done it a couple of times, enough times, you know, it's, that it's cool. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the people who do it fly commercially also, it's just a means of transportation. Um, and, you know, when I was working at Google with some of the partners that we would have, they would take us out to their award ceremony. So I would get invited by ESPN, go to the ESPYs, uh, go to the after parties, you know, go see LL Cool J perform, go to these private parties, um, you know, go to the VMAs, same thing there. And it's like, yeah, it's cool to go to, but you go and, and it's fun and it's fun the first time and it's fun the second time and maybe a little bit less fun the second time than the first time. And by the third, you know, award ceremony, a cool thing that you post on Instagram, it's like, this is cool. Like it's better than staying at home, mm. but it's like not that great. And, and if I didn't do these things one, two, three times, I wouldn't have realized that it wasn't that cool. And maybe I would have positioned my life to do these things because I thought that this was the quote unquote life to live. Once I've had a taste of it, I realized that I'm not going to get fulfillment from that, mm. right? Any more than I'm going to get fulfillment, long-term fulfillment from eating like a donut. It's like, it's nice every once in a while, but this is not something that I'm going to build my life around. But it's like you were, you were exposed to those environments to know that you didn't that's not what you wanted for fulfillment and i think that's the issue with a lot of people is like if you're poor you're not often exposed to the wealthier environment to realize it's not right. or not long enough or have deep enough connections with people in that tax bracket that gives you the understanding if you want it or not 
And I think that's really what worked for me is I started getting around people when it's funny, but like I, I try not to ever be this way. That when my tax bracket raised, I try to make sure I'm a middleman and have friends in each tax bracket below me in front mm -hmm. of me because it keeps me centered and down to earth. And people just act and have different conversations in different tax brackets. And mm -hmm. it's a real thing. When I talk oh, to yeah. my friends who are wealthy, they, they speak about ideas and they think about, they, they speak about development and what's, what's next. And, uh, uh, how do they refill their cuts? And when I speak to people who typically with lower tax brackets, it's based around maybe sports or what other people are doing. Um, mm -hmm. It's not saying that people in higher tax brackets don't talk about sports too. I'm just saying these are just things that I'm I'm I'm, I'm observing. Notice, I'm in these yeah, situations. can't help but notice it, right? Yeah, you can't help but notice it. But what I do realize though, and I was around people who were doing better than me and financially and had a bigger house and a little bit nicer things. And I was, uh, I was good friends with the guy named Andrew and I was like, what is it? You know, wh where's the number? Where's the number? Cause he has a really cool life. He gets to work from home a lot. I'm like, what's the number for you? And he's just like, you know, you, you figure out that number that's sustainable for your family and anything after that, he goes, you get in that sweet spot, kind of like your diet, diet, Alex. He goes, yeah. you know, anything more than that requires, you know, 15, 20 hours of work more a week. And I realized that that 15, 20 hours, is, is, I, I, it's better spent. I have more fulfillment when I'm with my family. So it's mm -hmm. just, I can live this lifestyle that I have with this amount of work and be able to provide this with my family, but also be completely available for them. So it's right. like, okay. So I started seeing that because I wanted to be a multimillionaire at one time. Like four years ago, he put this to a podcast and I'm like, that's all I'm out. Like making more money and figure out how to hustle more and get mm -hmm. more cash. You know, my tone has changed over the years because I've been um, – in environments of people who've had you know that million dollar or whatever salary a year or income a year and i see them how, how they operate and how they work i'm like it's a little bit more than what i want to do <laughs> you know and it's just like i'm just being honest this is like it's more effort than i want to apply now I'll apply it. You guys know, like, if you've been following me, you know I apply max. I'm a fucking coal miner. I'm blue collar, hard nose. I'll work hard. I've worked 16 to 20 hour days for the first nearly year IVB was open. But I don't want to do it if I ain't gotta. I'd rather be kayaking, making six figures, chilling out with my friends, doing podcasts when I feel like it. Not, you know what I mean? So I'm going to get paid for this right here. We're just chatting with each other. But these are the things that I'd rather do. DM people on social media and do meet and greets, meet up. Like These are the things that bring me more fulfillment. And if this is the tax bracket that I'm going to have to be in, at least I know I'm able to provide a solid income for my family. But I'm also to be in this sweet spot in life where I'm not overworking myself. Yeah, and I think this is, it's really hard for people to grasp uh, that idea because, uh, you know, people think, well, if I, if I had millions of dollars, things would be great. And at the same time, a lot of these same people think, well, if I, if I just got that raise, things would be a lot better. Right. And these are two very different things because that raise isn't going to give them millions of dollars. It's going to give them an extra $10,000 more a year. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is you need a lot more. If you, if you think money is going to solve your problems, if, if you look to money as, a, as the thing that will um, make my life easier, you need a lot more of it than you think you do, right? Mm. So like you're, you know, if you're making 70K and you think, well, if I get that raised to 90K, it's going to make a big difference. It might, it might make a big difference in your, your week to week uh, cash flow, you know, be able to pay for things, but you're still worried about money. It's not like, you know, just because you're making more money than you're spending doesn't mean you're not worried about what happens if you lose your job or what, what happens if you have medical bills. It's like the amount of money that you need to, to not worry about certain things, if your mind is predisposed to worrying, is a lot higher than you think it is. 
Yeah, um, you, you change, man. Yeah. When you make more money, you buy more expensive things. It's just like, it's just the way that it works. So it's like- Some of you, us do. Well, if you get that raise, most of us, okay? Not everyone's as disciplined as you, Alex. When you get that raise, it's just like, okay, I want this raise not because I'm going to give myself, because uh, people want the raise to be more comfortable. That's yeah. the thing we got to understand. So in order to be more comfortable, most people's mind goes to the things that they have. So rather than the things that you have, it's rather the things that you possess that can make money for you. So assets. So if you get that $10,000 raise, you should think that with that 10K, instead of me spending it on a new car payment, a new car note each, each month, so uh, my car note can double. You know, I go from 300, I can charge 800 now or $700 for a car note, and I'll be able to cover that for the year. Rather than doing a car note, go buy a couple cars and flip them. And then you mm -hmm. turn your $10,000 that year into $25,000 the next year. And then you start getting with people who understand money well. And you pay them $3,000 out of the $25,000. You say, what do I do with this? Where do I invest it? Can you yeah. help me? It's not like I'm some cash flow motherfucking expert. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing half the time. But then I get around people who do and they teach me systems and I know how to operate. And I'm like, some bitch, that's easy. I can yeah. do that. I just needed some guidance. And now that right. I got some guidance, I have more confidence in myself and more confidence in what I can do with my money. And now I flip that and I gave that 3,000 away. So now I only got you know, 22,000. Now I flip that 22,000 and make 33,000. So in three years I've gone, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I've made $33,000 off the 10,000, but I also continued that $10,000 raise this year. So I flipped what could be 30,000, I made it 53,000. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And what's interesting when we're talking about like nice things, I was actually thinking the other day, the car that I'm driving now that I'm at my mom's house, is her car. And like, I don't care. I just like drive it around town, go to the gym with it or whatever. And then I was thinking like the other day, I'm like, do I make more money every week than the price of the car I drive? And, and I looked it up. I'm like, uh, no, I don't, but almost like I almost do. And, and, but it's like, I don't care. It's like, literally, I, I don't, if I can drive one that's 10 years older, it just takes me from point A to point B. And, and it's, it's crazy. Like, you know, cause I go to the, the crunch down the street uh, now that the gyms have reopened and, you know, I'm driving this, uh, this old Honda Accord to the gym. And, you know, in the time that I've been in Idaho, I've met, you know, other athletes at the, at the track uh, and at the gym. And, you know, I go in there and I wear my Vanderbilt baseball gear because not because I want to tell everyone I played for Vanderbilt, but because I don't like paying for gym gear and it's free. And it, I happen to have like only bought, two articles of gym clothing in, in the last 15 years of my life. And I like to keep it like that. And so, you know, I wear my Vanderbilt oh, shirt. Buy some IVB gear. At least you know you're supporting your homie. I have bought two IVB sweatshirts and, and one IVB shirt. And I will buy more as more becomes available. Um, but it's interesting. Like all of the people at the gym, you know, they're all nice to me. They all, you know, they want to talk about baseball. They want to talk about Vanderbilt. They want me uh, chatting with their kids. They want me spotting them, all, all these things. And it's like, this is a really cool environment. Clearly the people respect me. Like I don't need to go drive a nicer car to get more respect from them. Like they already respect me. What, what do I need to, what would I need to drive a, a newer, nicer car for? What would I get from it? You know, I, it would just be a more expensive thing to maintain in service uh, on top of other things that I want to maintain in my life. And so, um, <clears throat> yeah, I guess it's just, it, it, and we talked about this one of the other, other episodes or it's like, it's just not um, a, a priority for me to just accumulate all these nice things, particularly when I'll have friends who can have a hundred times more of them. It's like, what am I showing off for? Like, I'm not, I'm even if I'm doing well relative to other people, some of my friends are doing a hundred times better than me. Who, who do I think I'm, I'm fooling? 
Yeah, there's like so many different ways to look at it because like my situation was so much different than your situation. Like your situation, your parents taught a lot of practicality. You know, it's obvious that where, where you get that mindset from. You know, it's just like I never had that that taught to me, that that practical approach of like, does it make sense to do this? Like my parents went bankrupt and, and, and they're right before they got divorced. You know what I mean? But it's like they had no understanding of cash flow. When we were so, I mean, we were so broke, our house payment was only $250 and they lost the house. So it's just like, what? I, yes, that's a, we were poor, 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 $250 and they lost the house, got repossessed, our cars did. You know, these are all things that that's how little that we had. So when I'm saying I had no understanding of how cash worked or operated, like I fucking mean it. I learned all of this. Like I have a, what I agree, what I understand now, I took $732 of IBB and I flipped it and I made something that's super incredible with Iron Valley Barbell. Like I have a lot of understanding of cash flow now and how to, how it works and how to manage my money and where to place my money. And it doesn't control me at all. I don't even balance a book. It's just like, I have a spreadsheet available and as I look at, okay, this, this, if I'm making this much money here, I, I look at it as clients. If I get this client and he re-ups and, and I get this guy added on, I'll be able to do this for the gym. So it's like, I just look at things a little bit differently that makes sense for me, but might not make sense for my accountant, but it makes sense in my mind. And I've been able to scale my business tenfolds from it. Because it makes sense for an executioner. It makes, sense, it makes sense for an executioner because the executioner has field level vision. It doesn't make sense for an observing fan because the observing fan doesn't have the perspective of the quarterback. You're a hundred percent right. You are. They, they, it's a different revision, man. It's a, it's a different, like when I add equipment into the gym, some people don't recognize like why, but it's like when I added that belt squad into the gym, I knew that when I added that belt squad, it was going to get me memberships. One membership is $420 for the year. It was a $1,200 machine. I need three members to sign up and I'd be able to cover that machine in that one year. So I get a PayPal six months on a PayPal loan or whatever it is. And I have three members that show up. If one pays it up front, I know I'm going to pay that thing off anyways. But it's just like, I know that that machine though was going to bring me six to 10 people into the gym because nowhere around had it. Not many gyms have it. And it's just a super cool, useful machine to have for younger athletes as well. And for everybody, you know what I mean? The boat squad is great for everybody. But I knew that. So when I invested into that $1,200 machine, I knew I, I pay myself back from it. So I'm not going to order things that don't bring me revenue. Like there's things I'll try out in the gym that don't do well. And I just pull them right out and I put something back in that can get me a couple members that make sense. Right. And this, this sort of, sort of shows the difference between what a consultant might tell a business versus what the business operator might intuitively know. So a consultant um, or somebody with a more formal education might say, okay, well, these are the trends. This is what people are searching for online. And this is what they're searching for in the Indianapolis area. And we've noticed that there, there happens to be um, more of an interest in say uh, Pelotons and cardio equipment. Um, the market for uh, for gym gym goers is stagnant, but the market for and I'm just making this up. The market for gym goers is stagnant, um, but the market for for Peloton and some of these at home uh, equipment um, pieces is growing. So you know, Zach, if I'm your paid consultant, you know, what do you think about investing in um, you know some of these cardio type machines that the people can can then do at home? And that would make sense within a closed uh, evaluation system because everything I'm saying would be true. Like you could look at Google search trends. You could see that people were, were wanting these things and that market is growing. But as a, as an operator, Zach knows like, is that actually my market? Like that's a market, but is it my market? And, oh. and he knows 
I need to be able to talk to people. And even if they don't know that they want this thing, I can tell from the conversations I'm having with them that they want this thing. So they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily searching for this on Google because they don't even know it exists, but I know it exists and I know what they're looking for and I know, and I know what they're concerned about. And so I know that, you know, normally in a month, I'm going to talk to 20 people to try to sell them on gym memberships and I'm going to normally sell 10. I don't know. I'm just making this up. But I know that if I have this equipment, I'm still going to sell, uh, talk to 20. And I think I can, I think I can turn out 12 a month for the next three months. I just think I can, I, I know how these conversations go. I can, I can feel them. And then I think finger to the wind, I'm going to be able to pay for this because I can convert based on, based on everything that I'm feeling. Oh. None of this will make sense to a consultant because the consultant can't prove that what Zach's saying is true because the consultant isn't in Zach's shoes, right? And what the consultant also does when you just look at data, you don't look at personalities. Like this right. is the thing that computer, computers have fucked up with us. Like there's gotta be human interaction, body language and read it and how it's, and how the person's acting and what I, you know, I'm in meetings sometimes with people that I do meetups and stuff. And I feel sometimes I just jive really well with the people and other times it's like, there's a disconnect, right? It's just like, I can feel if people are not necessarily that if I meet with people and we're not, not you know, best buds or whatever, it's just like, but I know if I'm able to do business with them in the future, if our, if our personalities are going to jive together and work together well enough, right? So when I'm looking at, you know, gym equipment, and if I were to buy that, buy into that bike, well, the issue is when I buy into that bike, or that specific, I had a girl who's in bikini prep, Zach, why don't you buy into a, a stair stepper? Which I should, like, I think a stair stepper is great. You know, I think a treadmill is great. Like you know, a if, piece of cardio, maybe one. What do, you, what do you think about it, Zach? And I said, you know what, I'd like to, but eight to 10,000 bucks, and I, and I look at the, the demo or six to 10,000, whatever. That's how much they cost. Stair steppers are, especially for the ones that don't need maintenance all the time. Like they're good stair steppers are expensive, bro. Wow. So it's like when I look into this and I see the return that I get from it, it's like, it doesn't make sense, but not just the return because I'll eat, I will eat a bullet for my gym if the equipment will be necessary and it will prove my members overall health and wellness for what they're trying to achieve there. I will do that if I deem it's necessary for the amount of members that want or need to use bus equipment. The problem that I kept on running into though is who does this equipment attract? What demographic wants more of this style of equipment? Not the demographic that I care to have inside of my facility. I love when then people visit my gym. Now there's show ponies in my gym, don't get me wrong. There's moms, there's grandmas, grandpas, there's people of all different ages and demographics in my gym. But I do know. When I get more stair steppers and when I get more treadmills, the type of demographic that that attracts, well, that demographic doesn't mesh as well with the current community that I've already built. So what it kind of does is ruffles some feathers. It creates dividends or divisions, if I should say, in the so gym. What you're saying is the people who go to gyms and expect uh, cardio equipment don't like a bunch of loud music with people with tattoo sleeves and their shirts off. Is that what it I'm tends hearing? To be that way. Yeah. And that's also the reason why gyms like mine failed in the early 2000s, late 90s and early 2000s, whenever Globo gyms came. The reason why they failed is they tried to accommodate for their, accommodate their facility for their members' wants and needs. Where everyone's like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to accommodate for what your people want. That's fine. But what you do that is you create a wedge between the culture that you've been creating in your facility and the new culture that's hip and fresh and new that people want to be a part of. So there's going to be a demographic of your population that's going to leave to go to the services that these big global gyms are providing. Water, pools, saunas, 
unlimited equipment. Water? Like, yeah, water. Fancy like, stuff. Uh, you know, pool, water pool, not actual drinking water. We got water, water, like we're swimming, you know, swimming thing. Things that you swim in, you know, people want involved with this stuff. They want, they want to have this in their training regimens all of a sudden now, right? So that being said, they, they see it's flashier and there's better and then they want to go there. So you're already losing a portion of that, that, that market whenever those gyms come in. But then what gym owners are trying to do is they try to win them back. Oh, we're getting new treadmills and we're getting a this and they're getting this. And what they do is they fucking drive themselves in debt with thousands of dollars of pieces of equipment, you know, $4,000 to $8,000 treadmills and different uh, rowers and different uh, stair steppers and ellipticals. And they, they buy all this. I know this because of three to three or four different gyms that I was training at at the time in early two, uh, 2008 to 2013 did this. And then what ended up happening was they over they lost the big demographic of people to like the Planet Fitnesses and, and the Anytime Fitnesses that was coming into town. Mm-hmm. I'm sure this happened with LA Fitnesses and Lifetime Fitnesses all over the United States too in small gyms. So what they tried to do though is win back that portion of clientele that's already leaving. What happens is they only win back a little percentage of them. That right, of course. doesn't cover the overhead that they try to use to win them back or what they thought the new members were wanting. Listen. Now the old members who are already loyal to the old plan and the old community are disrupted because you have new rules and regulations because you're right. trying to hold on to a new demographic that a culture was never built from you. So then the guys are like, well, listen, I'm hardcore, but there's no sense of being here if they have limited equipment and I can only train the same, I can train the same way at LA Fitness as what I can train at this private gym. I might as well go to LA Fitness if they offer more stuff because the rules are the same here. Right. That's, that's why gyms like mine fucking crash, bro. And that's why they have a hard time staying afloat. It's because they don't pick it. Like I have my niche and I stay true in it. Like I don't care if someone says they want this. It doesn't fucking matter what you want. It's only a matter what we want. And what we want is the betterment for everybody here. Not just your punk ass or your punk ass. Like if the members want to come to me with stuff they, that they want, they know better to come to me with stuff. <laughs> your own gym you goofball you want that open your own fucking spot i don't give a fuck it's not (laughs) you see what i'm saying i'm getting stuff if you want a fucking treadmill go buy one put in your basement that's what you want i'm not here i'm not santa claus okay (laughs) you're starting to look like santa claus though (laughs) i'm I'm providing a facility that's best for the people in there i got limited space 2400 square feet that we actually work with and train with 2700 total 2400 that we use Every piece of equipment that I have in there has a specific purpose for specific reasons that make people better. So if I'm pulling something out and putting it in, it's for the betterment of not just that one goofball, but the 20 goofballs who wanted it. So in retrospect, this seems like a clean story. I do my thing. I, I listen to my, uh, my intuition. I know, I know what's going to sell. Um, and I stay true to the culture that I'm trying to build. But clearly, you're going to have struggles with that. Right. There, there has to be. Yeah. So like, can you talk through that? You know, what were yeah, some I don't of the have a massive membership base? Like if you want a gym that has a thousand members, like I could probably teach you how to scale it because I understand what people want in facilities, but I also need to have you recognize that you're at to deal with a thousand different personalities and that when you create gyms that have multiple niches, you have to deal with multiple demographics of people. I don't have a lot of Carmel housewives, which is just a high end area here in town, coming into my gym wanting Pilates and yoga lessons. Okay, they know that they're not going to get that. You know, I don't have to deal with that style of people. I have to deal with the style of people that I want to deal with. So my goal was never to scale my business to be a be rich off gym memberships. I need enough gym memberships just to cover all my overhead. 
I can cover all of my overhead with only my gym expenses, including getting the gym. You know, my goal is a thousand dollars every month of new equipment. Uh, so if I can cover that overhead, then sick. That's all I wanted. I make the rest of my money online in personal training and in, in, in uh, online coaching. That's where I make in my eBooks and shit. So that's where I make the rest of my money. I've made sure that when I started my business, that I had multiple streams of income. So I wasn't having to pressure or rely on my memberships in order to get more memberships. Now, what would be a decision that you almost made? You, you felt like you were getting tugged in one direction because you thought it would help cash flow. You thought it would help for popularity, but ultimately you resisted. Like you, like you were tempted to get, uh, say you were tempted to get a, a uh, a treadmill or something like that. Is there, there has to be a time in the, the few years that Iron Valley Barbell has been in, in operation where you were, you, you almost like compromised uh, a first principle, but then were able to, to stop yourself. Yeah. You know, we, we had an old treadmill that was never used in an old Jacob slider that was hardly ever used, but I was just trying to fill space at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, it was funny. I, I probably compromised most at the beginning. Um, the mm-hmm. gym was, even more hardcore than what it is now. Like we would wrestle almost every day. You like, would say fight, wrestle? Wrestle. Just like fight, like wrestle fight. Like not true fist fights, but wrestle. Slam each other around. Like it was just a little bit different because it was mostly only dudes who were going there too. So there's just so much fucking testosterone. Right. And I had like probably like 50, 60 members, you know, that first six months or whatever it was. Um, I don't even remember what it was. Maybe it was a hundred, but it was, it wasn't, it wasn't a ton. It was not a ton of members and mostly were only dudes. And the gym was basically just concrete and some random mats and some random pieces of equipment that really didn't even make a ton of sense. So people were there literally only for the hardcoreness. And what had started to happen is I started to evolve the gym into like more training and bringing in more trainers. And it's, it's fucking, you know, I did these hardcore still, but right. it's just, it's not as dangerous as what it was three years, <laughs> you know, four years ago when I first walked in and people were always trying to try you and, a big thing at IBB was like, go outside. You know what I mean? Like, if you want to talk shit to each other, walk out back and fight. No one cares. Like, we just- How many fights did you host at IBB your first No one really months? got fights. There was a lot of slap boxing and a lot of, like, hardcore wrestling. Like, choking each other out. Like, intense, intense wrestling matches and intense slap boxing. But there's never really fist fights. Everyone's best friends. Um, but people love it. Like, that's what they wanted to do. No one engaged right. who didn't want to engage. It wasn't like we were promoting- right maxillinity these guys wanted to fight that's why they're fucking there they wanted to it wasn't toxic they wanted to fight yeah yeah they wanted it like everyone you know that's the thing like my people that i run with bro like we love to try each other like my buddy brad's fucking i'm, I'm hosting his wedding this weekend he's 285 pounds mm-hmm. i'll walk in and try this fucking single leggy like the dude's massive he just falls on me and breaks me but it's just like i want to try him it's still of like you know it's just like it's part of like I love the guy morning and for, for, for crying out loud, I'm, I'm, I'm officiating his wedding. So we have a good relationship, but it doesn't mean I still don't want to fuck with him, you know? And so I think that is one area I almost compromised in is I try to stay a little bit too hardcore for too long and cater towards that demographic of guys. And a lot of those guys that were there actually don't come to the gym anymore. They have home gyms and kind of do their own thing. Uh, and they might stop in now and then because the atmosphere kind of changed a little bit and evolved a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that's what had to evolve into my mission. Like, uh, you know, maybe like in 30 years when I have like my own private, uh, like when I'm having retreats and stuff and I have my own private gym, I'll have that type of like hardcore invite only like IVB will always be open. Jeremy will run the shit. You know what I mean? And I'll mm-hmm. stop in a few days a week. But like when I have my own little private other spot where I bring people into retreats and shit, like that's maybe when I'll reintroduce that hardcore style and that training, 
uh, mentality again. Not that the training mentality has changed now, but it's just, it's different. And this is what I've noticed with as groups change. And I think we've talked about this, uh, you know, when, when companies start in Silicon Valley, and I'm, I'm more apt to speak to that having lived there for the last 10 years, they tend to be very hardcore in the beginning. You want hardcore people, you know, your core two, three, four, five, six people, they're going to have loyalty because there is no other group like that for those two, three, four, five, six people. Chances are those first two, three, four, five, six people are going to be weirdos. Um, and, and they're going to bond together because they're all weird in kind of the same way. And that's what's going to make them strong. Um, but as groups scale, like you're not going to have the most successful, um, you know, gym you possibly can if it only has six members or only has, has six people, you know, helping run the show. Like you need to have a team of, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. And, and the bigger and the bigger you get, the bigger the team you, you need. And what what ends up happening is when you want to scale that culture. Keep going, and that, Alex. I'm going to go pee real quick. Just keep going. I'll keep going. I'm saying when you want to scale that culture and when you want to scale the community, ultimately, you end up making compromises um, to your first principles. And those aren't necessarily a bad thing to make uh, because there aren't, you know, the, the outside world isn't weird like the first four, five, six people you have in your group. The outside world's going to require you to normalize yourself to accommodate them. And so the, the challenge for a lot of these uh, hardcore groups when they're starting is how can we keep enough of our first principles such that you know, the, the skeleton of our, um, our DNA and, and our, our, um, our foundation is still intact, but we're flexible enough to accommodate um, new members who might not be as crazy as we are because we need them too. Yep, exactly. So that's right. Um, you, you do have to accommodate for newer people within the demographic that you're searching for, though, right? You know, my thing is I'm trying to still fill uh, a need. Um, I'm trying to solve a problem for a super specific group of people. And that super specific group of people, and if I were to say it out loud, what it looks like, it's people who are coming to for therapy. They want to do everything they can to get better to not be judged for the type of movements and exercises they're doing. Uh, you know, IVB is funny. We're always doing weird shit. Like you could make a gym fuckery whole entire meme page off the crazy goofy shit that we do at IVB. And if we have new members who are just trying new stuff, you know, and learning new different types of equipment, like I know the demographic that I want to have in our facility and we have to you know, accommodate for, for those people. And that's the answer that we're in. That's the problem that we're trying to solve and the answer that, uh, that we have. But with that being said, it's also important to have boundaries and guidelines to how far you'll go or, you know, what you're willing to do to accommodate for people. And, and we talked about this our first night hanging out, how, you know, I think that this is actually something that's happened with society as a whole, because obviously there's a lot more people in the world now than there were 5,000 years ago uh, because the technology that we have is better. And so we're able to produce more food and, and uh, you know, get more from the earth to support a larger human population. Um, but if you, if you look at how like the human brain, human skeletons have changed over the last 30,000 years, in many ways we're weaker um, mm. than we were a long time ago. And that goes very much against what's taught about uh, how evolution works, survival of the fittest. What I think is going on with, uh, with human civilization is as our technology becomes better, the quality of individual 
or the, the quality needed to survive per individual goes down as the technology, uh, as a societal technology improves. And so what that means is, or some, something that's slightly related is the types of people whom that society will want to breed will tend to become more passive over time. They will tend to be, be you know, because in, in, in a society's beginning, you think about the pioneers who settled the, the Western portion of the North American continent. They were, they probably profiled very similarly to like the first six people who joined IVB, right? And then if you think about, you know, what's culture like on the West Coast now of the United States, you know, you could probably draw that out in a hundred years. And if IVB is still around in a hundred years, you could very much see that that, that culture by accommodating more and newer people um, gets watered down in, in uh, you know, in order to accommodate more people. But you know, if you want to be hypercritical of it, you could say that, you know, the, the types of people who it's accommodating are actually weaker than the types of people who the original culture was accommodating, which would be the case for, say, the West Coast in the United States. The type of person who can survive in, the, in San Francisco now, very different than the type of person who could survive in San Francisco in 1856, who came, you know, with a bottle of whiskey, a sack of gold, and a six-shooter. Ain't that the truth? That's a great perspective that I've never really looked through, to be completely honest. And I can draw a parallel with that with West Side Barbell. Uh, West Side Barbell has a documentary out, and they talk about how hardcore it used to be. And it's still hardcore, but it's just changed. They say it's just not quite the same. And I would, when I was going there on Sundays, guys would say that all the time. Like, it was fucking hardcore there. But they talked about it being 10 times crazier before, you know. And, and it was just like our gym, Jordan's gym. You know, there was multiple times that I was throwing fucking weights at Bart and fucking getting into it. And screaming and joel like i've expressed stories about joel motherfucking me telling me to get the fuck out of the gym and it's like it was a different culture man and it wasn't nothing personal and that's the thing you know people take everything very personal now and uh you know they don't really have to think you know rhino skin man that's something that you got to work on and and i would just really like to promote out and what i'd really just like to uh, i think share is people were just getting to a point where we're so worried about other people's feelings we're so consumed with, you know, the coronavirus is a great example of 99 point, what is it? What was it? It's 0.2% death rate, I believe now for the coronavirus. Oh, something, I think it's something like that is whatever. Yeah, it's 0.2% death rate. So it's like, you're, we're literally accommodating for 99.98% of people for the 0.2%, you know, uh, 0.02%. Which I think is, uh, you know, we, there needs to be guidelines. There needs to change this. Do we do we need to flatten curves and not overwhelm hospitals? Absolutely. But this nonsense that they're trying to produce right now, it's like if you remove yourself, no matter where you stand, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, do whatever it is, whatever it is, live the life that you want and, and live your lifestyle that you want. But you do have to recognize right now, it's like if you're this motherfucker, though, I'm a little fired about. I'm talking about it for a second. If you're Let's the do it. Let's do it, Zach. If you're this motherfucker, though, who's like, oh, you gotta wear a mask. Do this. Where were you last year when 3.4 million people died from the world's water crisis? Where was you? Was was why wasn't you advocating for these people? If you if it's just one, if we can just save one life, I'm all about saving lives. I've ran charities. I'm involved in shit like that. I love to save lives. I love it. But I'm also pro-choice on how I get to choose the, the handle my body and the freedoms that to go with my body because I pay a lot of fucking money and taxes every year out of my hard-earned money. And I provide myself this motherfucking freedom that I have and I deserve because I pay for it. And the people who came before me paid for it as well. So I get to choose what I do and I shouldn't have to accommodate. And I told Ash the other day, I wouldn't wear a mask was 50% motherfucking death rate. I'm going to choose what I want to do because it's my motherfucking choice. 
It's just like, these are things that I think people aren't truly recognizing is you're being biased, whether you want to believe it or not. Oh, you got to wear a mask because you're saving people. Fuck you. Who was you saving last year? You're caught up in the pack mentality. You're caught up in yeah. someone else is doing this. So you're like, well, this is what this study did. This study said, and then there's an opposing study that says the complete opposite stuff right now. It's okay. total chaos. It's total crazy. But I'm speaking to the old noble ones. You want to scream at people in restaurants and gas stations and shit for not wearing a mask. Was you screaming at people last year for not providing clean water for 3.4 million people who died from it? No. Were you doing anything for world hunger? No. What was you doing in your previous life pre-corona to do things that if you're so noble to just saving one life, what were you doing to shut down your, the entire economy or your entire self in order to provide that for other people? It's easy for people to do this now because they're receiving government assistance. And it's easy to talk crazy when you're comfortable. Mm -hmm. So I think that as I get older, I didn't want to get into that. It's fine. I think our audience understands. Um, and, and our audience can also see the tweet that I put, put out a couple of days ago of me filming myself in front of Cadoba, throwing my mask and glasses on, telling Zach, is, does this get me banned from IVB for the rest of my life? If people can wear masks and glasses in IVB. I don't care what they do. I don't care what anybody does. I don't, it doesn't bother me, but just don't care what I do. You know, do whatever you want to do. But if you're just so noble and, and you feel like you're wearing a mask because you're that one guy who's like, I want to save lives, make sure that you was doing that last year. Make sure you continue to do it next year. Not just when the government says, oh, it's okay to stop wearing masks now. Are you still going to wear a mask though? Because there's still potential. Right. And when the government says we can go back to work and stuff, there's the, the coronavirus still exists and it will still kill people. So you better keep your motherfucking mask on for all the year and all next year until they find whatever it is that you want them to find in order to be able to heal this. And that's the thing that gets me. It's just like everyone's super biased about it right now, but are you going to keep the same energy next year? Right. What do you do, old noble one, to save that one life of so many people who are dying? And why I use the water crisis is the number one thing in the world that's killing people right now. Is the world's water crisis. Clean water, yeah. But it's crazy. We don't talk about it because you're sitting in your fucking house and you turn on your thing and you have water. So it's not a right. big deal to you. Well, so I think this, this goes back to sort of one of the things we talked about in an earlier episode where as I've gotten older, you know, through my late 20s and early 30s, is... I've come to realize that if I want to be able to communicate with 100% of people, not just like 50%, but like if I want to be able to communicate with everybody, I need to understand their fictionalized reality, right? Because everybody has every, you know, I would say 97% of individuals live in some sort of fictionalized reality. And the 3% who don't are like really hard individuals. Maybe they served in wars you know, they got their legs blown off. They just have an understanding of how, how brutal uh, aspects of life can be. And, uh, but I do think that 97% of people uh, live in, in some degree of fictionalized reality and it helps them uh, organize information around them without getting incredibly stressed out. And, and I think that that's necessary because if they didn't live in a fictionalized reality, they wouldn't automatically understand what was going on around them they would automatically understand that they had no idea what was going on around them and they would, and they would just panic and, and um, you know, there'd be a lot of chaos. And so I think the way a large society functions is um, many of the individuals who, who, who live in fictionalized realities need other people to condense down information for them and tell them what to do. And uh, through the schooling system, we are ranked and evaluated based on our ability to take information from an authoritative source 
and um, regurgitate it as if it's true. So we, we develop this um, mindset from a young age, from the age of five-year-olds, five-year-old onwards, that if, we're, if all you do is simply regurgitate the message of a person in authority, you will get treated better and things tend to be okay for you. And so you develop a worldview that if I just do what I'm told, things tend to be okay. And if everybody just did what they were told, things would be okay. And then that's the reason why they're getting mad at you. They don't understand, like they're not looking at data tables. They're not looking at likely causes of death um, across you know, var- various continents. They're just looking at what the CDC is telling them to do. And they're saying, Zach, you're not doing what this authoritative source is doing, is, is telling us to do. Why are you not doing that? I'm doing it. All the people I'm friends with are doing it. Why do you think that you're so special? You're being incredibly disrespectful. So they're not even looking at, and it's not even within their capability to look at, look at the big picture. They can only look at it from a small, from a small uh, narrow perspective. And that's why they're, they're going to have that opinion outside of the people who are actually believing this for mathematical reasons, because they think the tail risk is uh, multiplicative. And so it's not 2.2% because that can multiply upon itself if the hospitals get overloaded and then it would end up being like 20% or something like that. Which is, who knows, you know, yeah. maybe that's the thing. And I so I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to say that I'm educated enough on how to solve the problems for the coronavirus. God knows I'm not in that position. There's a reason I'm not in that position, right? But I am educated enough to know to read tables, to read the graphs, right. to realize I listen to information. The coronavirus, they said, we're doing this to slow the curve. The curve has slowed. They're still trying to slow the curve. There's, just, yeah. there's no, the curve is slowed. You, you see what I'm saying? Like we've reached, we're reaching these points now that change needs to happen. Uh, it's easy for people to sit at home. You know, when you, your business, my, my business had to be closed down. So it's a little bit more personal. Now, yes. More Clearly with small business owners, it is. Yeah. You know, to, to go, well, it, don't you not care about saving lives? Like motherfucker. Yeah. I was actually the first one to close. The minute I heard that this thing could kill too many people. I'm like, my doors are closed. I'm not being a part of no one dying. I don't want to be a part of this. And then there's propaganda, fake news, all this shit coming left and right president says one thing does another it's just like people wear masks only during the interviews taking them off i'm like wait wait a second wait up a second i'm not falling for it i'm not doing it i'm not falling for just fucking believing in every single thing you're saying and not actually doing my own facts checks like anytime says someone there's a dude in my gym who's real big into it i keep telling me he's run for president but he just expresses very logical points of view. Someone's like, oh, there's 97,000 deaths, blah, blah, blah. He's like, that number's not right. Here's the number. It's 83, whatever it was. And, and the person's like, whoa, sorry, I was off 11,000. Like, it matters. And he's like, well, it does matter. Like, the accurate number of deaths does matter because you're, you're, you're pushing a false narrative that's not actually accurate of what's mm-hmm. happening. It's just like, I think a lot of that is going on right now. And it's just a constant fear. And people who are, you know, and another thing that was just really... Uh, I, I think I think it's crazy for us is that we have this this lack of testing, and then now you know if the tests are even accurate. Oh, for uh, sure. Beginning. So it's just like all this stuff. So there's so how many people were walking around LA or San Francisco who were okay, who, yeah. who had it. You know, so it's just it's just super crazy. The whole thing is nuts. Um, it's easy to have your own points of view, like me. It's easy for me to be passionate about something when my business is involved in it. But it's also like, listen, I took. I took two weeks and barricaded myself in a cabin to generate an opinion. I didn't speak on it for three months. 
I lost 70 total thousand dollars, 50K in a market and $10,000 a month at the gym. Like I've lost, I have an investment in this process, okay? <laughs> and, and before I generated an actual opinion and started caring and conducting myself in a certain manner, I made sure I got all the information that I believed was relevant at that time. And then I expressed my opinion. Mm-hmm. But how many people can say they waited three months before they expressed their opinion on it? Not many, because they just fucking react to the first thing they hear, whether it's pro-Trump or pro-fucking Democrat, whatever side it was, their political view, and whatever side that party's pushing, that's what they ran after. And they never actually stopped to generate their own opinions. And it, it's too bad, you know, when I see what's going on right now, the, you know, because I've spent 10 years working in uh, corporate America, you know, I'm, I became more cognizant of the different uh, ways people can hide and, and skirt responsibilities. And what I think is happening right now at the political level is politicians, I would say most politicians are, are making their open close calculation based on what they think is going to get them elected in the next, in, in November, right? You Basically, outside looking in, it looks like that at least. Yeah, they're looking in, you know, they're looking at the mirror and they're saying, how do I do the best for myself? <laughs> right. And, and the, I think the people who are, who are uh, staying closed, you know, I think maybe part of them think that that's the right thing to do. And I think another part of them think that if I stay closed, uh, they can't uh, pin this on me. My political career will not take a nosedive from this. And I think a lot of politicians are saying that they're, they're looking at this like a, like a, you know, explosive type event where if I reopen, and, and my state becomes New York, my political career is over, right? Because any office that I try to run for, um, at, you know, this coming November or, or any time after, they say, you know, look at, at, uh, look at Governor Feinberg, look at Governor Homel. He decided to open um, when everything was, was trending downwards. Do you really trust this person to be in a leadership position? And they're making that calculation and they're saying, I don't really get that much from reopening but I can hedge a lot of risk personally from staying closed and I'll wait for the other States to open first. And and so when you have, you know, I think one of the other days you posted a sheep type uh, tweet and it's like, this applies to politicians too. They're looking doing. you can, I mean, how many, how many blue States, red States, like which ones are open? It's all the red States. Yeah. So if you know it's not political by now, you're fucking crazy. You know what I'm saying? It's just say it's like it's gotten to the point where now we know that it's political. It's like we know that because the data's in. But when people don't choose to recognize that, it's just like, man, you're sheep. You're just following what you believe in. Republican or Democrat. I know when I talk, I lean more Republican. I lean more to the right. I'm not. The fuck them losers too. They're all fucking retarded. I don't fucking agree with half <laughs> the shit these fucking goofballs are doing. And that's why I don't vote. And everyone's like, you don't vote, you don't have a say. I'm like, sure, but I can have an opinion. I don't. I, no, I have no real say in none of this shit, obviously. I'm not making nothing change. But I do, what I am trying to say is like, if I can just get people to think for themselves and they still decide that the mask is best for them in their situation, good, wear it, that's awesome. But you also have to come to the perspective of realizing that you, you can't make me wear a mask the next three years, bro, come on. Because that's, that's what you're claiming. How long years does it take to actually have a vaccine that's going to be good? Like six to eight months? They don't even know. But it need, you need at least that long, right? If people are all about taking – I'm not taking that shit. But whoever would, you know what I'm saying? So one thing that, that I'm, I'm starting to do is um, whenever somebody comes at me with a very strong opinion, force them to qualify it. Say, under what circumstances would you change your mind? Right. Or, you know, say without a vaccine, under what circumstances would you change your mind? Just as a performative exercise. A lot of times they can't. 
because they haven't actually thought with that degree of complexity. Like most people don't realize that if you want to make smart decisions in life, you need to have nuance. You need to say, this is what I believe under these conditions. Not this is what I believe and I'm done. It's this is what I believe under these conditions. And if, if this, that, and the other thing changed, then my, then my belief itself would change. If you force people to admit or, or show their work, you know, show me that you've thought through this rather than you're just regurgitating what you were told on CNN, two thirds of people will, will break down. They, they can't do it because there is, no, there is no way that they can look at it with any degree of nuance. It's just hammer, nail, hammer, nail. This is what we do. Okay, how long are we gonna do this? What if there is no change? What if, what if it becomes apparent that um, XYZ uh, you know, industry or XYZ uh, department of, uh, of the government is concealing information and, and, uh, and, and not presenting it truthfully, then would you change your mind? Like, and it, how far do we need to go for you to change your mind? And this can go with whichever side of, the, of, of, of a, an issue you're on force the people that you're talking to to qualify under what circumstances they would change their mind. And if they can't, their mind's not ever going to change. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I like the idea of challenging people with that, but what have you found since doing that? People, um, people back off a, a little bit, right? If you do it nicely, if you do it and, and the way I do it, my deliveries yeah. are never good. I never do anything because I've already made my mind up. And I think that's part of my like knowing when I'm super passionate about something and a belief. I'm a very open-minded guy. But when I hear people just start to regurgitate headline stories, uh, numbers that aren't even practical, I feel my emotions elevate because I'm just like, you're, because I know what, I know their perspective. Your perspective mm -hmm. is, a, you're just, you're, you're looking at the butt of somebody else and you're just saying the same things that they said. The same thing they shit out is the same things you're eating, the same things that you're shitting out. So it's just like, when, when you have this, uh, someone who either is super biased in one approach or, or one idea in relation to another, and they can't provide uh, information back to them, then, then where does it go? So some people are too stubborn to, to change and you're not going to, like those people you can't touch. But what I've, what I encourage, even people who I, I work with, you know, people who report to me at work, um, question-based uh, interrogations. So rather than, rather than telling people you're wrong because ABC, ask questions that expose their incompetence, right? Um, so, you know, if, if you force somebody to come up with an answer that he doesn't have, he knows you know he doesn't know what he's talking about, mm. right? Whereas if you just hammer three facts at the person, like what about ABC? Then they're gonna just, they're, number one, they're gonna completely avoid, avoid addressing those three points. It doesn't matter how good they are. They're gonna sidestep them and say, well, what about these three? It's exactly like a boxing match. It's like, you throw your good punch. It's like, well, I'm gonna get away and then I'm gonna throw my punch. Like we're man, not accomplishing anything there. Wow, that's such the truth, man. And that's what you see a lot of the argument. That, that's, why I don't, that's why I don't express a lot of these views. Uh, so so passionately on social media. I'll just drop little nuggets here and there, but because I don't care to get into debates. With, I, I'm not on social media to argue with people. That's why I do it on this very closed-ended platform where people can have their own opinions, but it doesn't matter. I'm having my conversation with you and with, with a person that uh, is open-minded enough where we can discuss and have passionate uh, conversations about you know, whatever this looks like. But it's a crazy time to be alive. None, nonetheless, moving on from that, um, I think it's crazy. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope things begin to start evolving for us. And I hope that, you know, we as people start to hold our media to a higher standard and that will require us sure. 
yeah. stop watching the news. And this is hard for a lot of people to do, but we know that they're putting out false information on both sides because both sides are contradicting to each other. We know that they're really taking snippets of what certain people are saying. Uh, certain certain people who are running for president and certain people who are president, they only take snippets of what their, their yeah. conversations were and they try to put them on blast. It's like, we know these things are happening, guys. We know that if we only read the headlines and news stories that we're getting clickbait information, we know the type of world we're living in right now. It's important that we observe that and we take the data for what it is and make our own decisions based off of it. Like I literally had the conversation the other day with Ashley's grandma. She didn't realize that things on the internet couldn't be true. She believed everything on the internet was real. She just got an iPhone. What? She's like, oh, if you could type it in, I just thought it was no idea. She was telling Ash some crazy shit. Ash's like, wait a second. <laughs> what? It's 80. She doesn't know. Because well, of the typeface, man. It's because it looks, it's because it's a clean font. She assumes it looks the same, but a clean font is good. But let me tell you. There ain't much difference between her and a 30-year-old housewife living up the street. No, I know. That's true. They both think the same. One's like those. I know everything's not real on the internet, but they don't have the intuition or the understanding or self-awareness or confidence to be able to base their own opinion off of it. So it's just like they know some of the shit. Like people know some of the shit they read is super far off. But since they're kind of leaning to the right or kind of leaning to the left, fucking right, and they go with it. It's crazy, man. I think um, I think that's cool. I think we should we should wrap it up with that. Let uh, let people uh, marinate on that uh, for yeah. next week or so. Yeah. And um, Zach and I can get on with our days. But uh, thanks everybody for for taking the time to to tune in to episode six. Join us for episode seven. Peace out. Peace.